Good morning again, church family. So very thankful that you're here this morning. Uh, we have been on Sunday morning preaching through uh, the book of Matthew, uh, and we've kind of come to a climax, a culmination of sorts last week. Um, Jesus challenges disciples to articulate who he is, right? He says, who do the people say I am? And they kind of relate to what the, the general consensus is. And then he says, but, but who do you say that I am? And it leads us to that great confession by the apostle Peter. He says, speaking for the group, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. To which Jesus responds, you are right, Peter, not because you figured it out on your own, but because God graciously revealed it to you. And this is how I'm going to build my church, one God-drawn, genuine confessor at a time. This is obviously a high point for Peter, who Jesus calls blessed. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, right? Um, and so we see this kind of high point for Peter, but we also notice that this encounter ends with a surprising twist. Jesus says, now, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ, Right? As a great confession that Jesus is the Son of the living God, the, the Christ, and Jesus says, don't tell anyone. The ESV says he strictly charged them. Uh, that is, he gave them an official charge as their uh, rabbi, their teacher, not to proclaim his identity to anyone. Why, why? Why would they not run and shout it from the rooftops in Jerusalem? Why would that not go to all the little towns and proclaim that the Messiah is here. Jesus is this Christ that they have been waiting for. I believe there are two primary and related reasons. One, the people did not yet understand what that meant. And two, neither did the disciples. They would be proclaiming something they didn't fully understand, and the crowds would be hearing something different than what Jesus was come to do. They would be hearing through a cultural and religious filter that would distort the message much better for Jesus to finish his work on earth as the Messiah, send the Holy Spirit to enable his followers, and then for them to proclaim the totality of the truth, than for them to rush out now and proclaim what they did not understand and what would be misunderstood, right? Which brings us to our text today. Jesus is going to start teaching them what it looks like for him to be the Messiah, right? So they have this great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and now he's going to tell us what that means. And we're connected to our text last week from, with the words, from that time, in verse 21. From that time, Jesus is going to begin to do something. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew 16, at verse 21, Matthew 16 at verse 21, it will be on the screen uh, so that you can follow along if you did not bring your Bibles. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So stop there for a minute. So Jesus began, it says. Uh, this would be an ongoing explanation of his mission. This was not a one-time lesson. Jesus is going to teach this over and over and over again from now until after he even returns. Is he going to be teaching about his work? But he begins it here. This is the kind of the time that Jesus transitions to a more specific teaching. He is going to begin to for, more fully explain what it meant for him to be the Messiah they confessed he was. Now, after some time... Uh, Jesus explaining these things, the Bible says Peter, the one who had just been praised as a rock, a part of the foundation of the church, he takes Jesus aside. You find that in verse 22. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. What Peter says there is one word, God be gracious. Far be it from you is God be gracious to you, Lord. The idea is may God show you mercy and correct your wrong ideas and spare you not only from death, but the wrong ideas about your mission. This is what Peter says. He puts himself in a position uh, to say that this will by no means happen. There's a double negative there when he says this shall never happen. Peter has gone from confessing Jesus is the Lord to knowing better than him, right? This is the moment. Peter pulls Jesus aside and said, listen, I I really hope God shows you differently because you're wrong. This is never going to happen. And so when Peter was confessing that Jesus is Lord, he was praised as a a rock. And now he thinks better, he knows better than Jesus. So Jesus turns to Peter and rebukes him with the strongest words he could have used. Verse 23, but he turned to Peter and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When Peter was thinking the thoughts and the things of God, when he was acting on what God had revealed to him, he was blessed and welcomed by Jesus. When he was thinking of the things of man, he was denounced and sent away by Jesus. As we noted last week, Peter is a spokesman for the group, and it's likely that all the disciples are thinking along the same lines. So Jesus now turns to the whole group and explains what it truly means to follow him. He says, Peter, you you get out of here. The way that you're thinking is according to man and not God, and you are a hindrance to me, a a trap for me. And so now he's going to turn to the the whole group of disciples and explain to them what it means. In verse 24 is where we'll pick up. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, Jesus' mission as the Messiah is going to take him by the way of the cross, the way of suffering, the way of this this death. And he wants his disciples to not only understand that, that that he's not going to avoid these things, that this is is God's will, this is the Father's plan, and he is going to go this route. But he wants to understand that if in following him, this will be their way as well. Right. This is Peter could not fathom that that God would send his Christ through this. But Christ says, no, not only am I going through this, but you will go through suffering as well. You will go through the way of the cross. He says, if anyone will come after me, that is to say, if anyone wants to be my disciple. And this means, listen, look up here for a second. This is as applicable today as it was when Jesus said it. Right. If anyone wants to follow me. So this is a call to any person who would follow Jesus to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is going to say, if anyone would follow me. So as men and women who profess to be followers, we need to seriously evaluate our lives based on what we find here. And if you have not become a follower of Jesus, you need to understand what Jesus calls you to this morning. Amen? So Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would be my disciple, and then he's going to give us three commands 
of the way of the cross, and then we're going to look at three principles that undergird these commandments, or this call to live this way. And so we're going to look at the commands and then principles. And so if you're taking notes, the first is the commands of self-denial. So Jesus essentially commands his disciples to a life of self-denial, and we're going to look at that in this way. Jesus gives us three commands in our text, and each one uh, is, is in the present tense, which means it is an ongoing, continual action rather than a one-time decision. So when Jesus tells us to do this, this is not him telling us to do this once. It is him telling us to do this continually. That's why the gospel writer Luke says daily after each one of these things, he's picking up on the, the sense that Jesus is telling them this is an ongoing action. So we have these three commands that Jesus gives us. The first is this. Jesus says we must deny ourselves. So if you're taking notes, that's the first command. He says, deny yourself. He who follows me must deny himself. So what does it mean to deny in this context? And to what extent are we called to deny ourselves? Well, the word here used is a combination of two words, to deny and to separate. And used together, they indicate a complete and utter denial. It is a complete separation. Right? This is the level of denial that he says, deny yourself. And in context of denying someone, it is to affirm that you have absolutely no acquaintance or connection with the person in question. This is used in Peter's denial, thrice denial of Jesus on the night of his betrayal, right? This is the word that is used. Peter denied that he knew Jesus, right? Jesus had told him, you were going to deny me. He said, I'll never deny you. And then he's challenged by uh, a servant girl. and He says, I don't know what you mean when she says you're with Jesus, and then he goes out, another servant girl says, you are with Jesus, and he says, I don't even know the man. And a little later, some bartender said, no, uh, you sound like one of them. I, you are with him, and he says, uh, cursing on himself and swearing, I do not even know the man. He denied Jesus. That is the, the idea, right, when we deny ourselves or deny himself. That's understandable enough, right, to deny Jesus is to deny that you know him or have anything to do with him. This is what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 12. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me, same word, before men will be denied before the angels of God. And so this is, we understand. But what does it mean when we take the idea of denial and couple it with the word for ourselves, right? Deny himself. Like we, what, what does that mean? How can we claim to not know ourselves or claim to have nothing to do with ourselves? Is Jesus calling us to some spiritualized amnesia? When we come to Jesus, are we to abandon all sense of self, of who we are? Of course not. God creates us all unique and in the image of God, right? He's not asking for us to just uh, forget in the sense of who we are and who he made us to be. When Jesus says, let him deny himself, he is communicating the idea of removing ourselves from the highest position in our life. It is the dethroning of self. Our self-interest, our goals, our desires. When he says he must deny himself, he is talking about denying our own selfish interests, goals, and desires. To say it this way, to be a disciple of Jesus is to quit fighting for a position that is not rightfully ours. Quit trying to fight for the rule and reign of your life as king because you are not it. Following Jesus is not a way, listen, is not a way to enhance your life. 
Following Jesus is not a way to further your agenda. Following Jesus is not a way to get what you want in this life. It is a full and complete surrender to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is saying, you are king and I am not. And so when Jesus says deny himself, he is saying, listen, this is what it means to follow me. And furthermore, we remember, remember, this is not a one-time action. As we indicated in in the tense of the command, yes, it begins with a confession and repentance of sins, of acknowledging that Jesus Christ is God's anointing, but it is also an ongoing daily decision to deny ourselves in light of who Jesus is. This is the command. If Jesus is king and Messiah and Savior and Lord of your life, then this is a daily denial of anything that falls outside of his kingdom, wills, and desires. Amen? So Jesus says, listen, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself. And we're going to look at this a little further when we get into the principles. But for now, it's enough to acknowledge that the foundation of discipleship The foundation for following Jesus is self-denial. Deny yourself. Deny himself. The second part of this command to self-denial, he says, is we must take up our cross. To take up something is to take it upon oneself and to carry what has been raised. We say uh, it is to bear something. I think as a church, we often misunderstand this reference. We say things that sound super spiritual, like this is just my cross to bear, or maybe this is just your cross to bear. We refer to the cross as something that has been laid on us that we must endure. An extended sickness, a less than desirable situation, a circumstance. And listen, there are surely times that God lays something on us. Think about Paul when he prayed for the thorn in his side to be removed, and and God said uh, that he had placed it there for a purpose. There are surely times that God lays things on us, but the cross is not one of those. That is not what we're talking about. Because the cross, Jesus says, is not something we passively endure, but an intentional shouldering of a burden for the benefit of others and to obedience to God. So when we talk about bearing a cross, he's not talking about something that has been laid on you. He's talking about something that you intentionally shoulder. So it's not a sickness that has been laid on you. It's not a situation you find yourself in. It is something intentional. So what is this cross Jesus speaks of? I mean, we, have a, we have a beautiful cross here. We, a lot of us have cross necklaces. We have crosses engraved on our Bibles, right? What, it, what is the cross that Jesus is talking about? Well, it is, as we know, a, a cruel instrument of shameful capital punishment. It was reserved for only the most guilty criminal robbers, rebels, rarely used on Roman citizens. It was an intense, usually multi-day, excruciating experience that the Romans used not just to humiliate and ultimately kill the condemned, but to discourage others from following in their footsteps. So how are we to understand what carrying our cross looks like? We need to look no further than Jesus, who in less than six months of saying this, would literally carry his cross to Calvary. Less than six months, he would shoulder that burden and carry it to Calvary, where he would be nailed to it and would ultimately give his life while on it. But listen, Jesus began carrying his cross longer and far longer than the day they laid it on his back. This was something he chose 
over and over and over again. Remember when he began to show his disciples what? He says that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This was not an option. This was the plan. This was the necessity. And it had been on his mind the entire time he's been discipling and teaching his, his, his students, his disciples. He's had his mind towards Calvary, the cross. He has born, has been, his entire life, he's born the cross, right? It's not just this moment. Every time, listen, I was thinking about this. It says that he's going to suffer many things. We know that that's insult. So he's going to be struck repeatedly. He's going to have his beard ripped out. He's going to have a crown of thorns pressed on his head. He's going to have these mock trials. He's going to be flogged. And all of this is part of his suffering. Uh, rejection of his Messiahship and his message and, and all of this. And from the very beginning of his ministry, what did Satan do? He tempted him to avoid the suffering and to go straight to the glory. Right? This is the temptation that Satan had in the very beginning. But since that moment that Jesus rejected that, he has marched steadily towards the suffering he would endure. Every time he chose to rebuke the Pharisees, every time he chose to reject the erroneous religious laws, every time he chose to break a commandment of man to honor the commandment of God, he was ultimately bearing the cross that would lead him to Calvary. He knew what he was doing. We talked about this in our Bible study time this morning. He knew that standing on his convictions and following obedience to God would bring him suffering. And yet every time the choice was there, he chose the cross. So he rebuked and he corrected and he, he healed. It would put him at odds with the religious leaders. This was bearing his cross daily. And listen, do not mistake me, we are not called to carry his cross. It's been carried. The work has been done. He cried, it is finished. He has accomplished salvation in its entirety, a once for all finished sacrifice for sinners to be redeemed, but we are called to carry our cross. So what does that look like? In the same way, we must be willing to obey the commandments of God regardless of the suffering, the loss, or cost of doing so. We must intentionally do what we are called and commanded to do, knowing that the doing so will put us at odds with the world, knowing they will hate us, that we will face persecution and suffering, and yet daily we must choose the way of the cross because this is the way Jesus calls us to follow him. Three commands, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then finally he says, follow me. Now, this command encompasses the first two commands to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. So we're going to look at it briefly before we move on. But I want you to understand that in the context of Matthew, to follow Jesus is, is, is to conform our life wholly to his example in living and if need be in dying. It is to believe all that he says and to make his life a pattern for our own. This is what it means to follow Jesus. What he commands, I believe. What he commands, I do. How he lived, I seek to become like him, right? Being conformed into his image. This is what it means to follow Jesus. But I just want you to see this one thing this morning about this final command. We do not blaze the trail of self-denying, cross-bearing living. We follow in the footsteps of the Lord. 
He doesn't invite us to do something new and radical or something he did not do. He says simply, follow me in what I have already done. Paul says it this way in his letter to Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the way of the cross, the way of following Jesus, who pioneered it when he accomplished his work of salvation. He emptied himself in humility and endured the cross and accomplished the purposes of God. This is, this is the way of the cross. And this is when Jesus says, follow me. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. A life of emptying ourselves and humbling ourselves before God in obedience to his commands, right? This is what he says when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't call us to this life and just say, follow me. Not only does he tell us that, he goes on to give us reasons or principles why we should follow the way of the cross, why it makes sense to live this way. And so let's look at the principles of self-denial. Let's pick up in verse 25. We're going to go ahead and read through 28. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each one, each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so Jesus gives us three principles here that kind of undergird this call to self-denial. The word for is important. Each one establishes a reason Jesus gives us for the way of the cross. And so if you underline your Bible, underline the word for in verse 25, 26, and 27. This is the reason we live the way of the cross. The first, we're gonna, I'm going to call the principle of true life. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The way of the cross is sacrificial. While you may not be called to physically lose your life like most of the apostles or some of the early church fathers or other modern-day martyrs, it will cost you to follow Jesus. Let no one tell you differently than that. It will cost you, it will be, it will, it will cost to follow Jesus. And Jesus implies this because the word save here can mean, and I think it does mean here, whoever would preserve his life. And the idea carries the idea of rescuing someone from suffering, from danger or disease. So to save your life would be spend your energies and efforts avoiding suffering, avoiding danger, and avoiding disease. It is avoiding discomfort. It's seeking gratification. It is living to get all that we can from this physical life, right? This is what Jesus says. If you seek to save your life, preserve your life, get everything you can out of this life. And this is the modern twisting of the American dream, right? Success, prosperity, and longevity. 
If you work hard enough, you can achieve success, be prosperous, and live a long, full life, setting your kids up to be more successful than you were, right? This is what Jesus says, if you live this way. But let's just say for a moment, this is how you choose to spend your one life here on earth. Even if you find pleasure and happiness and longevity in your life, ultimately, Jesus says, you will lose it. Now, we know he's not just talking about losing our life in the sense of death, because death happens to all of us, no matter how we spend our life, right? The saints and the sinners alike end up in the grave. If Jesus tarries and coming back, all of us in this room will one day have our lives end in death. So what Jesus is doing is reminding us that true life is eternal, that this life is not it, and what ultimately what we do here matters in relation to whether we will be welcomed into everlasting life, having found true life, or we will find ourselves cast into outer darkness, devoid of any real life or light. But if we will, in light of our call to self-denial, lose our life for Christ's sake, If when there's a conflict between saving my life, preserving it, holding on to my material success, prosperity, or even my life, and following Jesus no matter the cost, Jesus says, if I choose him, I will find true life. Now this is, I don't think for anyone who grasps the basic principles of Scripture would argue with that, right? To choose Jesus, to choose this life over Jesus is to put us on a pathway that leads to everlasting punishment. To choose Jesus over life puts us on a narrow road of life that leads to everlasting life in Christ. I think we understand that. But I think Jesus also has in mind here our time on earth. Brittany and I have been watching uh, the show called Hoarders in the Evening. If you've never watched that and you want to be motivated to throw some stuff away, put a couple episodes on, right? All of a sudden, everything's trash. You'll be throwing everything away. But listen, as I watched episode after episode, I started to notice that in almost every case, the person who was hoarding these things, they think that they are enriching their life. They are buying article after article of fine clothing. They are stocking up on supplies, on food, on things, on value, scrap metal that they're going to sell one day, right? Every person, they're accumulating this stuff and they're thinking that they are enriching their lives through this process, but inevitably the things that really matter, their relationships with their families, the enjoyment of their house, their freedom, even their actual quality of life suffers. In trying to secure happiness in their life, they have lost any semblance of real living. Now, this is an extreme example of the process, but listen, don't doubt that it is replayed across the world on a daily basis. The business executive that worked so diligently to build a bank account for his family ends up estranged from the kids that he was too busy to spend time with. And accumulating what he thought would make life good, he lost what makes life good. The couple who divorces after 30 years of marriage because they spent so much time doing for their kids making sure they had every opportunity that they neglected their first priority, and once the kids are gone, they realize they have nothing left. And trying to create what they thought would bring happiness, they neglected true life. The pastor who finds his family leave him because he left them a long time ago in pursuits of the ministry. 
Because he worked so hard and so long that he neglected his first responsibility. He thought he was building his little corner of the kingdom and he was losing what really mattered in this life. You see the principle? Jesus says, listen, when you try to get things that don't ultimately matter, you will lose what truly matters in this life. When we pursue the lesser things, we often lose the greater things. This is what Jesus says will happen to those who choose to pursue the version of their life they want over what God calls them to do with their life. But Jesus doesn't call us to follow him to a lesser life, but to true life. Now, some may eject. If I don't work so hard and for so long, I won't get ahead, I won't be successful. If I don't make sure my kids are at every ball game on every winning team, they won't get into the college they want. They won't get the scholarships, right? If I don't work hard building my life, won't I miss out on promotions, on raises, on vacations, on trophies, on rings, on trophy catches or hunts? Did I get everybody's little pet thing? This morning, listen, to which Jesus gives us our second principle. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus has gone from talking about the principle of true life to talking about the principle of true worth. Things that really matter. Let's say that your kids get everything you want for them. Let's say they're in the small percentage that get to play ball in college or even the smaller percentage that make it pro. Let's say they're successful, rich, and experience this world in ways you can only imagine. What does it matter if they do not experience everlasting life? Let's say that you get everything this world has to offer. You eat the finest food, swim at the finest beaches, drink the finest champagne, wear the finest clothes. And let's say you do that for 50, 60 years. What does it matter if you miss out on true life? What advantage is it? That's what he says. What profit is it? What advantage is it if you get everything this world has to offer and you miss out on everlasting life? What advantage is it to you if you acquire everything the world has to offer, but in doing so, you cast away your very soul? Jesus says it again in another way. What shall a man give in return for his soul? And we could read that in two ways. First, is there anything that you would trade your soul for? Is there anything on this world, this side of heaven, worth your everlasting life? And if the answer is no, then why would you chase after it, knowing that you could lose your soul in the process? Second, maybe he means, is there anything that you could earn or acquire that you could give God in exchange for your soul? Jesus asks us. He invites us to think whether there's anything God would accept in exchange for our everlasting life, our soul. The answer is, of course not. Jesus asks both of these questions, understanding that the answer is obvious. What advantage is it for you to acquire everything if you lose your soul? The answer is no advantage. What could a man give in return for his soul? The answer is nothing. Nothing's worth it. Nothing could purchase it. This world and its things will pass away. The only thing that has any lasting worth are the things of God, things concerning the soul. This is where true worth is found. So we have the principle of true life, principle of true worth, and finally the principle of true glory. Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Jesus reminds us that this world will come to an end. He will return not in the timidity of a baby, 
not in the mostly peaceful preaching ministry of a carpenter from Galilee, but in the glory of the Father. We read from Philippians chapter 2 earlier, right, about Christ emptying himself and becoming obedient and, and, and humility to the cross, but that's not how that verse ends. Paul goes on to say, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will return as the visible Lord of lords and King of kings. And when he does, the Bible says he will repay each one according to what he has done. The idea is he will deliver what is owed as in the wages. So here's the question. What good will any earth-earned glory be in that moment? What good will be a full trophy room? What good will be all the praises you've received from man? What good will be all the status that comes from being wealthy be in that moment? All of it, all the glory you've ever received or wanted to receive in your life will vanish in the light of true glory. And then Jesus will give what is due. For those who rejected him and lived their lives for themselves, who did not deny themselves, who sought worth and possessions and achievements, who reveled in the glory they received from man, who sought to save their life, Jesus says they will lose it. That is what is due them. For those who embraced him and lived their lives for the kingdom, who denied themselves, who died to self daily and sought the kingdom, will be welcomed into everlasting life prepared for them, not because they earned it, but because Jesus who secured it offers it freely to those who will follow him. Paul says it in this way, Colossians 3, when Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. This is the true glory and it is far greater than anything we can experience inside of heaven. Like, so Jesus says, listen, this is how you follow me. You deny yourself, right? You, you follow me. You suffer, you follow the way of the cross, and you will find true life, true worth, and true glory. This is why it is why he calls us to this way. So here's the conclusion. Would you follow Jesus? Would you do you want to follow Jesus? And listen, understand this morning that the way is the way of the cross. There is no Christianity without the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus suffered for us and then entered into his glory. He calls us to suffer for him here in order to enter glory there. Now this morning we presented we are presented with a very different picture than cultural Christianity would tell you it means to follow Christ. We see from Jesus' own words that you can't be a nominal follower. We rightly see that it's impossible to be a Christian only when it's convenient because there is no convenience in the way of the cross. And we are left with an overwhelming sense that for many of us, we are in danger of missing it. We have so intermingled Christianity with the world that what is left doesn't even look like Jesus said it should. So what do we do? We ask God to examine our hearts. 
We get on our knees and we plead with him to show us where we are seeking to save our life rather than lose it for his sake. To show us where we are more concerned with what we desire than what he commands, we ask him to empower us to meet the demands of the cross. We ask him to give us the strength to carry on and not shrink back, and we repent. We repent of holding our comforts higher than his kingdom. We repent of seeking pleasure more than obedience. We repent of trying to find life, worth, and glory apart from him. When we encounter God's word and it looks different than our life, it's not his word that needs to change. And there will be no change unless we get on our face before God and repent and pray and plead. And so listen, in a moment, we're going to sing a last song of of praise, of response. And listen, the altar's open. If you want to come kneel at the altar and pray and, and confess, Brittany and I will be at the front to pray with you if you want us to just pray over you. But this time is a time to respond to what God is doing in your hearts today. I believe God's word that when it is proclaimed, it is powerful and that it accomplishes what God intends it for to accomplish. And so we're going to provide a time for you to respond this morning. Won't you pray with me?